listening to Omnitalk's Retail Fast Five, brought to you in partnership with the A&M Consumer and Retail Group, Avalara, Williot, EGW, and Sezzle. Ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally and currently ranked number one on all of Retail by Feedspot, the Retail Fast Five is a podcast that we hope makes you feel a little smarter, but most importantly, a little happier each week too. Today is January 24th, 2024. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Mazinga. And I'm one of your other hosts, Chris Walton. And we're here once again to discuss the most important headlines from the past week that highlight how the physical, digital, and human elements of retail are coming together to shape the future. Chris, my friend, we've we've got some some all-star guests today on the podcast. We do. It's my favorite, favorite show of the month. Every month when the A&M folks come on board and and chat with us, Anne. That's right. Joining us for their monthly Retail Fast Five appearance, we have Michael Prendergast and Manola Soler of the Alvarez and Marcel Consumer and Retail Group. Uh, Manola, this is round two for you. I have to ask. What did you do to prepare for your return? You've got coffee in hand. What what what's what's on deck for you as we go into your second guest appearance on the Retail Fast Five? I mean, listen, I'm just uh, aggressively caffeinating uh, <laughs> and uh, hoping hoping for the best. But really excited uh, to be back chatting uh, with you guys. So had had a lot of fun the first go around. Yeah, so did we. Yeah, and fair play to you and and you and Michael. I mean, it's seven in, to show everyone how the sausage is made. It's seven a.m. in the morning here on Wednesday, and we're we've got this candle lit and we are ready to go. Yes, it's definitely early today for sure. <laughs> yes, Michael. Michael, what number is this for you? You've made you've made several appearances on this show. I it's. I was trying to think of that. It's either four or five. It's been a yeah. while. I got super busy second half of last year, so I kind of took a sabbatical from this. But it's it's awesome to be back and see you guys and uh, have some fun talking about retail. Well, we will welcome you back with open arms, Michael. Anytime you need to take a break from us and our listeners, we understand. We we can be there. It can be a little much at times. Well, I was um, listening. I was listening from a distance. I just wasn't participating as much. We'll take it. We'll take it. Participating in mind, right, Michael? Participating right. in mind, right? I yes. was sort of Zen supporting you guys. We <laughs> felt I'll it. I'll take all the Zen support I can yes, get right we now. We felt right. it. We felt it. Um. Well, Michael, let's start with you, quick. Uh, for those listeners who um, who haven't met you yet. Tell us a little bit about you and your role at A&M. So I'm a partner here at A&M in the retail group. Um, I've been at A&M almost six and a half years now. Um, I was actually like, I think employee number 15 in the retail group, and now we're almost 200. Wow. Um, I was I was in industry for over 20 years. So I, I spent a lot of time at places like Tommy Hilfiger, Polo at Ralph Lauren, um, uh, was in the streetwear world and then was also CEO of a small cap fast fashion company. So I've got a pretty deep background in operations of retail. And then while at AM, I've done a ton of transformational work to help companies either turn themselves around or achieve results that they haven't been able to on their own. I also do a lot of interim work. So last year when I got busy, I was an interim CEO of a company out of the Midwest. So um, that's, that's kind of the quick uh, download. Excellent. So happy to have you. Manola, let's hear a little bit of your background too. Yeah, happy to. Uh, I'm a senior director with the consumer goods and, and retail practice at, at AM. Been uh, almost coming up in four years with the with the firm. Um, my background is a little bit of a mix of consulting um, as well as industry experience. I started my career in the creative side of the house. I'm a fashion designer by by training, believe it or not. But uh, oh. you know, 
quickly pivoted over to more business oriented aspects. But, you know, I just I love retail through and through. And, you know, it's been it's exciting to have the opportunity to kind of see it end to end. And here at A&M, uh, I do a lot of work with growth and transformation, uh, a lot of focus in apparel uh, and beauty. So, yeah. Yeah, that's why that's why I love having you guys on, because like, you know, we always joke and we always say we're the media outlet for retailers by retailers. And in a lot of ways, you guys are the consultants for retailers that are former retailers and, and or have a lot of operational experience and you fashion design background, too. So that's great. So thanks for being here. And before we get started, though, I think we, we have we have like so, some special programming notes for next week, right? Uh, we sure do. OmniTalk um, listeners, you need to know that next week. OmniTalk favorite Ethan Chernovsky will be joining us live on LinkedIn on Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern to discuss the five questions staring retailers in the face to start 2024. So if you are interested in attending, you want to catch the recap. If Tuesday at 1 p.m. doesn't work for you, you can head on over to our OmniTalk page on LinkedIn and look at the upcoming events section to register. It's going to be a good one. Ethan always is a good time. Yeah, he's yeah, he's been on our Michael's been on our show a lot, but Ethan's been on our show more than anyone else, I think, right, Anne? <laughs> for sure, for sure, without a doubt. Um, all right, Chris, that's all I have. I think we should get to the headlines. I think we should too, man. Okay. And you know what? I got a special treat because today's Fast Five headlines are brought to you again with the help and support of Shop Talk. Hey oh Oh my God, it's starting off. It's starting it off with a bang, Ann. I'm, I'm, I'm a highly caffeinated already, as everyone knows on I this can call. Tell. All right. As we have said many times on this show, and Shop Talk is without a doubt the best retail event of the year. And this Friday, prices are increasing. So do not forget to go to shoptalk.com and get your ticket. Shop Talk does everything better. First, the big things. And they have the best speakers in retail, of which I would include yourself, Anne. Oh, and you. Oh, Good thank timer. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that retort. An agenda that is is necessary learning if you want to stay current in the retail industry. A meetup working program that is completely unmatched. And they've got the best social events. The week always culminates in a beach party where people like Flo Rida and Nelly have performed in the past. I had to be very careful to say Flo Rida and not Florida accidentally on that Good one. Ed. You, not, you nailed it. You nailed I, it. But Shop Talk also takes care of the small things that can really shape your experience. We know because we actually go to this event every year. It's so nice to have coffee whenever you want it, lounge spaces to relax in, quiet areas to work. It just makes the whole event feel a bit more luxurious than the average retail show. That is why such high quality people go to Shop Talk. We're talking 75% of the attendees are actually director level and above. So if you consider yourself a retail leader, you yes. need to be at Shop Talk. So again, prices increase on Friday. Retailers and brands can use our code OmniTalk. That's OmniTalk with an O to save an extra ten percent off current rates. They're running out of VIP tickets, so if you want to apply for those, you better get on it. Go to ShopTalk.com and book a ticket right now. All right, in today's Fast Five, we've got news on Walmart shutting down store number eight. Wayfair laying off employees weeks after its CEO encouraged people to work longer hours. I'm dying to talk about that one. Ikea expanding its plan and order stores and something called Sephora Kids. What the heck is that about? But we begin today with big news out of Macy's. Anne. All right. Headline number one, Chris, 
Macy's has rejected a $5.8 billion takeover from its activist investors. According to Bloomberg, Macy's Inc. said Sunday that it wasn't interested in a bid from Arc House Management Company and Brigade Capital Management to take over the retailer, claiming that the offer lacked compelling value. The investors made a $5.8 billion offer or $21 a share for the company last month, and Arkhouse earlier Sunday threatened to take its offer to shareholders if the department store chain doesn't step up negotiations. The offer represents about a 19% premium to Macy's closing price on Friday. Also, last Thursday, Macy said it would lay off about 3.5% of its workforce. Michael, we're going to go to you first on this one. Do you think that Macy's was right in rejecting this offer? I do, actually. Mm-hmm. I think this is super interesting uh, from a story standpoint. And this is, I want to say the first chapter, but I actually think it's the prelude. I don't even think it's the first chapter. Ooh, right. uh, I think that Macy's, um, I've obviously been in business with Macy's for almost 30 years and um, have done business with them and, and watched them closely. And going back to the the market, stock market crash in 2008, 2009, I don't think Macy's ever made it out of there. They, in our opinion, from an operational standpoint, they've been a zombie retailer since then. Mm-hmm. So from a retail business standpoint, they've done a fabulous job of offlaying their margin damages to the vendor community to help to support them. So at some point, their retail business is going to cease to exist and, and be a big issue, which they're kind of reaching that precipice now. However, their real estate is absolutely worth more than what the bid was for the business. So the 19% okay. premium sounds interesting, but when you take a step back, it actually sounds completely inadequate because if you just think of the Herald Square mm. location alone, I think they were quoting that location, and this is going back three years ago or so, was worth two and a half or $3 billion at least. And then you look at the New York City real estate market and you think to yourself, a full block in the true center of Manhattan, like a true end-to-end four-corner block, right. like how much is that thing worth in the, the numbers are probably staggering could be double what they what they were offered this is so interesting just the like i mean i I think it 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 does hit on the points that we certainly were wondering like is this something is the real estate alone the value here and it sounds like that's that's what you're saying michael um manola anything that you would throw in an ad here yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree. I think it feels like a like a low ball offer, right? It's just, you know, the the value of the real estate alone is probably significantly more than that, right? So I, I, I think it's the right call on to, but to Michael's point, I think we're we're seeing the the beginnings of what's probably going to be a very long, <laughs> long story back and forth there. Chris, right. where, where do you fall on this? I mean, I I agree with both of what Michael and Manola said. I mean, I think the interesting thing to me is that, you know, Macy's as a retail operation, it's hard. I've said this on the show many times. It's hard for me to see how they are worth 20% more 10 years from now than they are today, given mm-hmm. what Michael said, because they are. They're a zombie retail. You go in the stores, they, they, they actually feel like something out of the zombie apocalypse if you go into the wrong one on the wrong day. Right. Um, but the question then becomes, OK, at what point do the shareholders finally say cry uncle and say, OK, we're ready to we're ready to get out. We're ready to cash in. We're ready, ready to harvest the value here. And it sounds like that's the ultimate question that's still on the table is 
what is that inflection point? 20% given the figures that Michael threw out and you know what the value of that New York real estate could be in terms of how he summed that up, I thought was brilliant. It's just a question of when does it reach that point? And is there a bidder that wants it to reach that point, which actually may be you know, the toughest thing to come by in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like, I mean, my question was like, where's the growth that supports that demand? Obviously it sounds like the real estate market is where the growth is for Macy's that supports getting or asking of more money. Michael, I, I'm curious in closing, like, is there any way that Macy's retail arm you think can stay profitable? Like, or that we could see an increase there? Like, could they spin off like Bloomingdale's or even Macy's backstage, which has seen a lot of, a lot of growth. Like, do you think that's even an option or is that just going down with the rest of the ship? You think? Outlook is super negative. I think that okay. um, the back backstage was sort of an ill-fated move. I think they were competing in a market they shouldn't be competing in and it dilutes their presentation in the normal Macy stores. They may have a decent growth rate there, but overall long-term, I, I think that's faulted. Okay. Uh, I think Macy's itself, it's, it's just, it's from an era that's gone by both socially and economically. Um, so I think the future is not bright and Bloomingdale's is interesting, but honestly, I think Bloomingdale's has kind of caught a cold of the department store malaise as well. It was sort of a gem of department stores, but really what does a department store mean in the U S today? And then what does it sure. mean 10 years from now? I think it's a really scary future. So, um, um, my outlook is pretty negative. I don't think there's a lot that the retail business can do. And the other challenge for them is with Jeff Gannett's retirement and departure, yes. mm -hmm. he is the last of a generation that was a tried and true retailer who came up through the ranks and has been there for 25 or 30 years. Now it's sort of this new world hybrid of uh, executives that I'm, I'm just not, I'm not hopeful for the future. Chris, yeah, last and word. I, yeah, I would jump in here too, because I think we do need to talk about the layoffs as well. You know, I think Michael's point too about department stores in general. I was trying to dig out my old Forbes article where I called department stores the horse and buggy of the 21st century, because that's essentially what they are. But but the layoffs is an interesting point too. The outgoing CEO is an interesting point. Tony Spring, we've talked to some of the people that have been laid off. We're hearing he's kind of an old school guy, may not get digital that well. There's a lot, potentially some dissension in the ranks. So, mm. so you don't you don't know that this is going to get any better. In fact, it could potentially get worse since they went, you know, internal with that hire. Um, and Jeff Gannett didn't blow the doors off anything either, you know, in his tenure, in my opinion. And I've been very loud about that. So, so I think we got to touch on the fact that, you know, this comes amid the backdrop of, you know, pretty pretty sizable layoffs once again. All I right. Oh, One go ahead, last Michael. quick thing. I mean, the interesting thing about Jeff is I actually think he stemmed a lot of the bleeding of the business. So although mm. he didn't blow the doors off, I think he helped uh, protect from even steeper losses. So all of a sudden you could have this tidal wave coming of, of challenging business for them. And at some point, the main reason for Macy's over the course of the past 10 years for all these big vendors was it was a retail access point. However, a lot of these wholesalers now have gotten into the direct-to-consumer business, either with robust.com sites or their own retail outlets. So at what point does Macy's become less important for them? And, and again, it's it's going to get ugly. Yeah. And the way I hear what you just said, too, is he was essentially the bilge pump CEO, which tells you kind of why we're in 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 the world that we're in now in regards to Macy's. All right. Well, let's keep rolling. Headline number two. 
One innovation lab closes while another one opens. Anna and I have some personal experience with these next two headlines. So we're excited to talk about this. Opening some old wounds. Opening yep, some yep, old wounds. Yep, pouring some salt in and pouring <laughs> some salt. Got the Mortons out and it's ready to go. Two companies this week embarked on drastically different approaches when it comes to innovation. According to the Wall Street Journal, Walmart shut down its store number eight innovation hub, saying that many of the ideas incubated inside store number eight have either, quote, been adopted by the wider company or shut down as misses. And yet, conversely, Target-owned Shipt, according to Chain Storage, has opened up a new innovation lab where Shipt will conduct experiments and research that includes things like drone delivery and fulfillment, personalization, my always favorite, my personal favorite, no pun intended, immersive and immersive shopping experiences in virtual environments such as the metaverse and gaming platforms. Manola... <laughs> Oh, I can't even say that last one with a straight face. What's your take on innovation labs? Are they the right way to drive innovation? Listen, um, <laughs> I think <laughs> collectively not the most optimistic group on, on the innovation uh, lab front. Uh, I, I can't think of many examples where they've been successful in actually delivering a meaningful innovation, right? Kind of disjointed from the business feels like yeah. a, a sinking of um capital well-intentioned sounds nice it's a great place to talk about ai everyone's trying to you know pull ai into something or other uh but but frankly you know it lacks meaningful impact to the to the business right what, what does that mean to kind of reach rethink the shopping experience via the metaverse like what does that even mean right so i not a huge proponent uh personally and i i haven't seen many successful cases. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to wonder like why in a public statement, you're talking about the metaverse for your innovation lab that that immediately raises an eyebrow and you're shaking your head already. Um, I haven't really talked to you about this story. I we kind of talked with Manola and Michael before we started. So I kind of know where they're, where their heads at with it, but where, where, where do you come down on innovation labs having been uh, part of a very big one in your previous career prior to OmniTalk? Uh, Chris, I'm going to quote my two of my favorite artists, Justin Vernon and Taylor Swift in the appropriately named song Exile. When we say, I think I've seen this film before, Chris, and I didn't like the ending. Uh, we know from experience, especially Chris, when Shift is saying that you're bucketing technology like the metaverse in with personalization yeah. and some of the things that I do think Shift is is valid in trying to dive deeper into what makes them differentiated from all the other third-party logistics providers out there, which is the personal shoppers. Like, yes, invest in technology to make that shopping experience better for your personal shoppers, better for the customers. But as long as it's bucketed in with things like the metaverse, unfortunately, that's subject to being on the chopping block right away. Yes. And, and you're tied into other like non-ROI increasing innovations. Like this is not going to bode well. You have to be, you have to be championed by the right people. You can't be an, a separate like a uh, tentacle of the business. You have to be part of the the business itself. And so unfortunately I think Walmart's doing the right thing here, knocking it out, bringing those people into the business and shipped. I just, I, I, I appreciate them, but I don't think this is a good move. Yeah. And you have to believe too, that that's the product manager's job, right? Is to create new product efficiencies that make the shipped experience better. So why yes. do you need an incubation lab to do that? If metaverse is part of that, that should just be part of their job day to day. But Michael, jump in here. What are your thoughts? 
I totally agree with what you're all saying. I think you cannot force innovation. And when you try to force innovation, you almost get this fake innovation. And as I was yeah. thinking of, as I was hearing what you were all saying, it kind of, I, I was thinking of like, if you want to start a band, you can't pick four baseball players or four football players, put them in a garage and say, go play music and get me new music. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe they can play music. Maybe they can play instruments, but you just don't know. And Great I truly analogy. think innovation rests in the people that are driving the business, producing new product, designing new product. And sometimes it comes from really the most unexpected places. So it's almost like if you set up this skunk works type atmosphere, it just feels very forced. And then it turns into chasing the bright, shiny objects. And that's what I was hearing when I was reading all of these articles about the announcements. It's sort of like, we're going after AI, we're going after computer learning, you know, customers want to have this ubiquitous access to product. And it's sort of like, okay, yeah, they do, but you can't force innovation. It has to be sort of a natural occurrence that these outfits, I just don't think um, are, are, are productive and effective. Yeah. I, the points I, I, I agree with everything everyone said, the points I would add to it and, you know, it was interesting. And, and I talked to you a little about, about this. I wrote an article yeah. in Forbes about Forbes about it this morning. Uh, we interviewed Prathaba Rajashekar, uh, the VP, uh, at, uh, I can't remember if she's SVP or VP of stores, um, of at automation Walmart. and innovation at stores in DC yeah. at Walmart last week. And as I was doing that interview, what struck me was, holy crap, Walmart's taking a really smart approach to innovation because they have her existing in the business and it's her job to drive yes. innovation on this front. And she she walked through three areas of innovation with, and it was, and she did it very clearly, AR, ESLs, drones, and all of them made a ton of sense. And she was incredibly articulate about it. And I said to myself, God, I wonder what this means for store number eight. And then like two days later, they're shutting it down, which right. the other point it brings up is, this is the last bastion of Mark Lloyd's imprint on Walmart. I think it's now been effectively washed away. And a lot of store number eight was started kind of under his guise or his lens from my understanding of it. And you had a lot of these kind of like skunk works projects that didn't make a lot of sense. And it seems like Doug McMillan's been smart to wash them away because that's the most important thing from my experience is to be a truly innovative company. It has to be supported from the top down from the CEO. And that's what McMillan has shown. That's what Ferner shows. That's what Bezos shows at Amazon. That's how they go about it. That's how they approach that. And so that's the fundamental lesson here. Because you're right, Ann. I think if you're on an innovation team, enjoy the fun work now. Enjoy oh. the metaverse experiments now. Because chances are you're going to be on the chopping block at some point when the board comes through and says, hey, you need to cut costs. And there's a lot of layoffs going on in the industry. So it's not a good or safe place to be. Yeah. All right. Let's go to headline number three. Wayfair has laid off over 1,600 employees in its last round of restructuring. According to Retail Dive, the job cuts, which mark the third round of cuts in about 18 months, affect 13% of its global workforce and 19% of its corporate team. The news also comes after a recent memo from the Wayfair CEO that was leaked to Business Insider near the end of 2023, which said, quote, Working long hours, being responsive, blending work and life is not anything to shy away from. There is not a lot of history of laziness being rewarded with success, end quote. Oh, boy. Woof. Uh, <laughs> Michael, I'm going to go to you first on this one. 
This is a loaded question, but what advice would you have for Wayfair's CEO as he tries to navigate his way through all of this and tries to wipe the egg off his face? You know, he's got to refocus his efforts. Um, I mean, we do uh, org uh, restructures for a living, basically. Mm -hmm. It's one of the major things that we do. And when I hear the right. numbers that he's cut and then the, the challenge I hear is three cuts within 18 months, something's not right. They're yeah. either not cutting effectively uh, to where they need to get to and or the business is shrinking and contracting so dramatically so quickly that the cuts just aren't enough. And when I, when I read through some of his, his press releases, it feels like his focus is really not in the right place. I mean, it's a very specific thing in reorganizing a business. You do it both financially and structurally to support the needs of your current and perceived future business. So from an org cut standpoint, it's actually one of the most simple things to do, um, as well as the number one rule in, in doing org restructures is you don't want to have to do it again. You want to do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you really want to do it, get it right, cut as deep as you can, and then set yourselves up for at least 24, 36 months. And clearly, they're not doing that. Um, I think his focus is completely misguided because he's not talking about growth from a top line standpoint. He's not talking about EBITDA. He's also not talking about what his customer needs and wants are. So for, for me, I would almost say, leave the, the restructuring to the tactical folks and focus your efforts more on how are you going to grow this business? How are you going to stem your losses? And then how how else are you going to make it profitable? Because the one thing I haven't heard him talk about, and I haven't done a ton of work on this, but I guess I would suggest his focus be on the supply chain and the operational challenges in running a business like Wayfair. That business is highly complex mm -hmm. in how you run it profitably from a supply chain standpoint, just based on the nature of the product that they're offering and the breadth of SKUs that they're offering. Yeah. And I, I think you bring up so many good points in that, Michael. I really appreciate your insight too, especially having having gone through reorgs um, at several organizations. Chris, I know that you are hearing a ton. You posted about this over the weekend. Yeah. On LinkedIn, you're hearing a lot from those employees who are have been impacted by this. Uh, especially, what where do you sit on this, and and especially given your experience in home furnishings? Yeah, I want to. I want to. I'll touch on that. I want to add on to what Michael said too, because yeah, I have I have met the CEO Shaw a number of times. Probably, God, five, six, seven times in my life, had direct conversations with him. And the one thing I would say about him, he's very left-brained in how he thinks about the business. He's very digital first in his mindset. And that'll come into some of my points too. But to Michael's point about staging the layoffs, mm -hmm. I think that's actually a very digital first approach to how you even go about a corporate restructuring too. Because you're like, hey, let me test the waters on this. Let me get the seat and see how it goes. Oh, if I need more, I'll just do it. The problem with that though, is it's a very impersonal approach to solving the problem. In theory, it could work. It might be a, the best optimal way to do it, but it's not when you get down to it because of the morale, the impact that it has on the organization. So, but I think that's an interesting lens to, to add to what Michael said. But to your point, I posted this on LinkedIn this weekend and I looked this morning, I 150,000 impressions already. And here's what I said. I said, quote, Wayfair had a chance to redefine home furnishings retailing 
for the better, but their absolute inability to put forth a compelling physical store manifestation of their brand over the past decade should be an indictment of the CEO and the entire leadership team. It's time to bring some right brain thinkers into this organization, end quote. Because that's my thing is like, how can a company that had the gift of the pandemic screw up this bad mm -hmm. to the point where they're doing multiple rounds of layoffs? I advised them actually directly in 2017 to Shaw and the rest of the leadership team to open up an Ikea-like killer store concept. They didn't do it. They still haven't done it. We haven't seen anything from them. And we've seen absolutely nothing. We've seen bupkis. So my question is, or my thoughts are that when I look back, I step back from this, I think there's just downright mismanagement here. And there's a lack of a creative vision of where this brand needs to go. Mm -hmm. And with that said, I think there's time for it's It's probably pr getting pretty close to time for leadership change. In my opinion, that's how you write the ship. Yeah. I mean, Chris, I interviewed Fiona Tan, the chief technology officer of Wayfair at Shop Talk last year. And we were talking about, you know, how Wayfair was set to open a store this this past fall. Like they yeah, were in the opening fall, right? Yep. They were opening it. She was thinking about it in the right way where she was like, we want to take this digital experience that you have on Wayfair that people are, that people enjoy, that people like shopping and bring it into a physical space. Uh, and, and clearly like Michael was saying, like you were saying, like they're still hamstrung by something. I don't know if it's hubris, lack of agility, perfectionism, like costs. Right. it's really hard to identify what's happening there. But in the meantime, I think you're losing morale of all the people who are there to make this, this stuff happen. You're, if, if you're worried about being, you know, your job being at risk at every, any given point, I think you're really challenged to make any of this progress go forward and for the team to be able to think in terms of physical location and enhancing the digital business too. Um, but Manola, I'll let you have the last word here. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with, with uh, what, what's been said so far. It feels like death by a million paper cuts with this kind of you know trickling of the, the third, now third round of, of layoffs. And I do think it's, you know, a wasted um, spike in the pandemic, right? It's, it's right. kind of, when are you going to see that type of, of growth and opportunity? And probably, you know, knock on wood, hopefully never, because that, you know, would mean we're all stuck inside again. But um, but yeah, it's a missed opportunity to kind of rethink what does that mean for the the business in, in the future? How do they set themselves up for, for success? To Michael's point with, uh, you know, inherently complex uh, supply chain requirements that the category has right so i it doesn't seem like continuing to cut in small increments is gonna deliver the the change that they need especially with ikea coming to eat their lunch which we will talk about soon um yeah yeah you're right yeah that's a great great segue and yeah and it's it's sad because the, the capital from the pandemic that they should have acquired has essentially been wasted to and they weren't ready to go on a store concept that they could have where they, that they could have used in deployment of that capital to take full advantage and, and grow their brand even more but all right but before we get to headline number four and ikea yes i want to ask you a question ann yes i like After, these you like these okay yeah. okay good after a chili new york nrf Yes. Are you ready for some warmth oh in our God. future? Am I ready? Am I ready? I, I joked last week, like you got to start planning the next vacation while you're on the vacation. So you have something to look oh. forward to. I actually hate doing that. I can't stand when people do that. It drives me nuts. But but anyway, Anne, well, if you are, well, you should yes. pack up your sunnies and your sundresses because oh, yeah. we're heading to Palm Springs for Etel West. Yes. It's the 25th anniversary of Etel West. It's happening February 26th to 29th. And they've given us a special discount code for our listeners. And the code is OmniTalk20. OmniTalk with an O, 
or 20% off your ticket. We'll be there live streaming from the show floor with the help and support of Firework. And we hope you will be there too. Go to etailwest.wbrresearch.com. That's etailwest.wbresearch.com and use code OmniTalk20 to register. Can't wait. All right. Headline number four. IKEA plans to open four more of its plan and order point with pickup locations in the U.S. this year. According to Retail Dive, these locations enable shoppers to pick up online purchases as well as talk to sales associates and to order products there. IKEA plans to open the new stores in Austin, Texas, the Atlanta metro area, and also two in the Los Angeles region. And all are in addition to at least three plan and order stores with pickups set to open early this year in Annapolis and Gaither Gaithersburg, Maryland. That's shout out to Gaithersburg for their first time appearance on this show. And of course, the always present Haiti, Texas. Manola, this store concept, when you step back from it, is really nothing new. We've seen it before from places like Bonobos, Nordstrom Local, many others as well. Do you think IKEA is taking a different approach and will it work for them better than it has, say, for their predecessors? I mean, listen, it's not a on its surface, right? It's not an innovative concept per se, but I do think it's well suited to the category, right? I think mm -hmm. it's a little bit different if you're going out to buy, you know, uh, a pair of khakis, the immediate gratification of taking it home might be there. There's very little immediate gratification in schlepping a Billy bookcase um, home when you weren't like prepared to do that. So, you know, I, I think the, that makes sense, you know, kind of have the interaction then either get it delivered or come pick it up at a time where you're, you know, kind of prepared to, to go ahead and do that. Um, and I think they've also done, they've had good progress in their kind of online ecosystem, which was frankly lacking when the pandemic hit, you know, those like $150 delivery fees made no sense with the, with the price structure of the, of their product line. Uh, now they've made a lot of progress where you can get that bookcase delivered for 30 bucks, 50 bucks, if you want it delivered tomorrow in your, in your, Home, right. So I, I think they're kind of piecing together uh, uh, an experience that makes sense for the type of product that they're um, that, that they're selling. And it doesn't feel over, over engineered. It doesn't feel like innovation for the sake of innovation. Right. If no. a simple concept works and they can execute it, I think it, it you know, it's to their to their benefit and lets them tap into, you know, a, a new set of, of consumers potentially. Yeah, that's a great point. It's a, it's a smart way to test and learn. Yeah, ultimately, at the end of the day, that's a really interesting point. And what do you think? Uh, I want to know, I want anyone to respond with who enjoys going to Ikea and it, it, that it is not a challenge to get there. Like, you have to plan that. It is not close. If you live in an urban environment, you are renting a car, you are borrowing somebody's car, you have to drive it, get it stuff, bring it back order de or organized delivery, all these things, like with only 52 locations in the US, Ikea is not an easy shopping experience for a lot of people. And I think this opportunity with these stores gives the retailer more exposure and it will be entered into the consideration set for more audiences. Again, stealing some share from Wayfair, 
You have lower prices that they're doing across the board, which makes it more competitive in that consideration set. Plus it eliminates every one of the barriers to ordering online before it's like, okay, am I going to order this thing from Ikea? It's less expensive. I can have it shipped to my house, but if it doesn't work, then what do I do? Then how do I get it back? Now you have returns and pickup in a convenient location that's closer to consumers' homes. You are booking a time with somebody like we haven't touched on the fact that, you know, you actually get to book a time with an Ikea expert in this, in these places where you're, they're taking you through the maze of Ikea that I might not want. Like it's overwhelming to me. So now I have that opportunity. And the last point that I'll made is that I think $50, even though they're bringing it down, like Manolo is taking $50 for delivery when you're an Ikea customer is still a lot of money for Mm -hmm. a lot of people. So I think that the idea that I can now pick this up and there's no charge to me for picking this up and still getting access to those products is brilliant. I named Ikea my retailer of the year last year. I think they're, they're continuing on that trend. Yeah, I'm gonna see. I, I'm I'm conflicted on this one. I'm I'm conflicted on this one, Anna. And we've talked about this a lot. Like, yeah, the thing, the thing, because I disagree with you on what you're saying. Yes, the IKEA experience is not something that people want to do, but it's very efficient for the job you have to get done. And so that's why you go out there, you spend the time, you go to this mega store, you can get everything you need to furnish your house in one trip. If you that can bring is, it back to your house, well, you but you can also have it shipped from the location too. Like that's if you want to pay. It. Yeah. If you want to, yes. Or you, yes. Right. So that is still a valuable, but you still can see the whole thing. You can see the full offering. That's the thing that I think has to be brought in this equation. So, because ultimately what you have here is just a store concept, like almost every other furniture store that has ever existed in America, if you get right down to it. So I just wonder if the return on assets is going to be high enough from this versus, you know, is it just a better, more efficient trip for me to get in my car drive the extra 20 minutes to go to the mega store, wherever I happen to have it and do my shopping there. I don't know. For those reasons, I'm skeptical. I agree with, with Manola though, that it's a smart thing to test, to prove wrong, but there's a lot of things that have to be true for it to work, I think. But, but Michael, what do you think here? And then I'll give Anne the last word because she's dying to say something in retort to me. I can tell already. Two things. The first, in response to Anne's question of what motivates you, I mean, a lot of the motivation is the Swedish meatballs there, right? I mean, that's kind of part of the reason you go to Ikea. You speaking from experience, Michael? <laughs> yes. So it is it is definitely a, 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 I think it's both cumbersome and efficient to shop mm-hmm. at Ikea. Mm-hmm. I actually love their expansion. I think what they're doing is super smart strategically in in getting into this plan and order business. However, I've got a huge asterisk with IKEA. And for me, it's a little uh, controversial, but it comes down to their products. I know it's it's more opening price to mid price, but I do think the longevity of their product is terrible. And I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that A, complain about putting things together, and then B, complain about the longevity and the quality of the product over time, that it's it's not great. So I think as they continue to expand, that is really the main asterisk in their success. I think they're doing the right thing, but it all comes down to product. If you have a good product, you're going to have a great business. If you don't have a good product, you're going to have the opposite of what great is. And at what point do they start to expand out saturate themselves in the market and then have a lot of people start saying, well, okay, IKEA is just okay product. And does that ever come back to harm their growth? 
Mm-hmm. Which is also why Wafer had a tremendous opportunity that they've just not capitalized on too. When you think about it from that context, but but and I mean, and your point is that there that there's still a big awareness play or a big availability play here for IKEA. So let's give you the last word and then take us into headline five. Yeah, I think the the only thing I would say is that Chris, your point is valid in that you're going for the single day trip. I think Michael's point's valid about it's the quality is maybe not not not. Uh, durability, but I think you need to really think about the op- where the opportunity lies with the next generation and with that entry point consumer who aren't going, they, they don't want to go on that Ikea trip. And now they have the opportunity to get in for some of the smaller items again, that they didn't have before. So I think that you're looking at stealing share from places like home goods from some of the other yeah, you know, like other, other easy accessible discount furniture places they're going to start to steal share because the experience of shopping that retailer is changing, which is what Ikea needs to do in the strategy they need to have to capture that next generation of audience. Yeah. Target Walmart too. So, so you're saying yes. generation alpha is non-plus and to shop, to go to a big mega Ikea store. Yeah. Segway. Yes. Yeah, Segway. Uh, let's go to headline number five. Speaking of generation alpha, the concept of Sephora kids is starting to stir up some conversation some controversy. According to CBC Canada, the question of why 10-year-olds are frequenting Sephora is dividing parents, dermatologists, retailers, and social media. Four groups that rarely are probably brought together ordinarily, but here we are. Uh, As more children buy into expensive, elaborate skincare and beauty products, the hashtag Sephora Kids has over 330 million views on TikTok. Most of these videos are adults complaining about kids wasting samples, being rude to employees, and spending large amounts of money on products for adults. Manola, you were quoted in this article. They they went to the best of the best to get uh, insight here on Sephora Kids. How do you think that retailers like Sephora should be thinking about and strategizing around Generation Alpha? I mean, I think the whole thing is really funny, right? It's like I, I go through TikTok and I see all these Gen Zers complaining about children in the in the Sephora's and I'm like, feels like Gen Z's starting to get old, you know, just like yes. yeah, right? music's too loud in here, you know, we can't, <laughs> what's happening? So that's kind of, it strikes me as, as actually, you know, it's funny. Uh, but if I'm Sephora, I'm happy, you know, because yeah. you're getting that it's a new crop of consumers. You're getting them, you know, in their early stage of kind of entering the, the category, which by the way, I don't think it's particularly early. Like I remember, you know, I was probably the kid walking in the department stores, like, you know, buying Mac lipstick and whatever, you know, when I was around that age. So I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, different about the time at which they're entering um, the category. But yeah, if I'm Sephora, it's, it's great. You know, it's a new crop of consumers and an opportunity to do right by them. There's a responsibility, right. To not, sell 10 year olds retinol probably but uh <laughs> right it's a great opportunity that you know for, for them to kind of uh get a foothold on that that new cohort of consumers and it seems like gen alpha is you know indicating that they're interested in in wellness and, and beauty and kind of that self-care aspect you know so if i'm sephora i'm really happy gen zers you know now now they know how it feels i guess <laughs> yeah no i totally agree i mean i think that it's if you're Sephora, right, you want that business. Every retailer is trying to go after that generation alpha beta. They want to get in, get that business. I'm wondering, and Michael, I'll maybe throw this question to you because I'm curious, like would a 
I looked to Victoria's Secret and when they, they kind of created an alcove for pink for that line that was going towards that next generation. Like, mm. do you think it makes sense for Sephora to almost like carve out a section of the store to really like put the drunk elephant and all these other brands that these younger uh, teens are going after, like to kind of give them a space within the Sephora? Absolutely. I mean, look, this is, it's, I'm obsessed with millennials, Gen Z's and alphas and the whole conversation about the differences between the three. Yeah. And when you look at the alphas, it's basically the old tween market that everybody used to talk about. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm shocked that people are shocked that this is happening. It's, yeah. it's sort of a rite of passage, 10, 11, 12. That's where kids start shopping heavy duty. Clearly, um, young ladies are going into Sephora and, and shopping makeup. So first of all, yes, absolutely. Absolutely distort to them. But the bigger thing also, I think, for Alpha is this is completely not surprising to me. This is the first real iPhone generation. Gen Z's had iPhones, but that was a generation where it was like, how old are you going to be when you allow your kid to get an iPhone? Is it fifth grade? Is it sixth grade? Is it seventh grade? Alphas had iPhones at a year and a half years old. Like they were handed iPads, right. handed iPhones. I'd see them all the time on planes and restaurants. So Alpha is going to be really the first discussion that um, our first generation, that the discussion is going to be completely different because of the influence they have had of this ubiquitous access to anything and everything when they wanted it. Mm -hmm. So the Sephora thing to me is not shocking at all. I actually think it's quite hysterical. And I think alphas and Gen Zs together are a highly important cohort because of their spending power and how they spend like yes. i don't even think we've seen yet the buying patterns of gen z and alpha and how to really uh cater to them right i mean 10 15 years ago it was like okay if we open a dot-com site we're good because we're going to capture the young generation yeah totally not the case today like you could have alphas that have maybe never even been on a website to buy they've only done everything through their phones and then what are the applications for them also purchasing through social media yeah. so i think it's it's a really interesting thing that's happening yeah the spending power question wow. is actually a good one because i think that to manola's earlier point like as a parent of a, of a tween, like if they're interested in good quality skincare, that's actually like a more of a necessity. I think the makeup stuff is a different story. They can go to the drugstore or Walmart for that. But I think the skincare, which is what they're really investing in here is something that I think more parents are saying, yes, not the retinol products, but yes, the skincare investment for a young, a young tween does make more sense. But Chris, I'm going to give you the last word here. Well, I don't, I don't think I have too much to add. I mean, when, when you ask the question at the top, like, you know, how should you be thinking about your strategy around Gen Alpha? I just go back to like the Harvard Business School and the framework they put in, put in our heads, you know, ad nauseum, which is like, whatever strategies and tactics you're going to deploy, you have to be comfortable with the financial impact, number one, two, the legal impact, and three, the ethical impact, right? And so you get into some gray areas with that, like the retinol example, like Manola brought up. So, but, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I thought your question to Michael was great too, because Ultimately, it just unleashes great merchandising and marketing. Like that's what we're going to see here, and it's 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 a really interesting question to try to answer if you happen to have a brand that resonates with that audience. And so we're going to see all kinds of stuff. We're going to see the stores shift around, how they allocate space, how they market the mm -hmm. different products inside the store, outside the store, online, via apps, via mobile phones. That's what's really cool, and that's what's exciting.
Great point. All right, let's go to the lightning round. Michael, you're first here today. Michael, Jeff Bezos' home where he started Amazon is on the market in Seattle for a, a cool $2.28 million. If you had that kind of money to spend on a home of some historical significance, what would it be? I, for years, I always thought I'd love, because they used to talk about Bill Gates's house being for sale yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. I always thought I'd love that. But now that you're asking me, and this has to do with what I watched last night, I would I would want the um, the house in The Godfather with the, uh, oh, yeah. the movie producer with the horse head in the bed. Oh, that one. Yes. Yeah. That house yes. is amazing. Oh, yeah. good call. I like I that think, one. I think that's also the Fletch house, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, oh, interesting. I to, yeah, I have to check that. But I don't quote me on that. But I think it might be. All right, Manola. Well, quick question. New Fletch fans or no? Have you guys seen the new I, I like the new one. It's I good. Haven't. I confess. It's very, very good. controversial. Yes. Very controversial. Yes. Some people are yes. Some people are no. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was good. I thought it was well done. All right, Manola. Oh, this one's always hard for me to say. Swarovski oh, has released a new pair of binoculars that retail for $4,800 and can automatically identify 9,000 birds via an AI-powered system. What other use case could you devise for such high-powered binoculars? Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Honestly, first thing that comes to mind is um, I'd like to be able to know what shoes people are wearing on the streets. One time mm -hmm. I was walking mm. in New York and this woman had the perfect, the new, uh, it was like New Balance sneakers in the perfect shade of off-white. And I didn't want to be I, like, I didn't want to be creepy and go up and ask her. And I was like, it's fine. I'll Google it when I get home. Turns out there's, you know, 30, 40 oh, different impossible task. Impossible like, task. Is it bone? Is it moonshine? Yeah. Is it what? Oh my God. So never yeah. bought them. Haunts me to this day. So yeah, maybe that those would have been nice to kind of whip out and know the shade. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right, Manola. Next question goes to you too. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you know this, but our beloved In-N-Out Burger is closing its first ever location in Oakland, oh, California. No yes. Citing crime and associate safety as the reason for right. the closure. Um, Manola, I want to know what would your last In-N-Out meal consist of? So um, confession time. Uh, it would have to be my my first in-N-Out <gasps> meal. Whoa. I have not had the pleasure and I, I feel, you know, I hear the, the legend and the, the folklore around it and I feel a little bit folklore. left out, a little bit of FOMO for sure. But uh, I don't know what's what's good. What's the yeah, and what would yours be? Um, mine would just be a, a cheeseburger and a chocolate shake. No fries. I don't like no fries. fries. No, how do you do I, that? I'm no fries. Oh. See, no I'm carbs. getting like three fries in my last. If it's my yeah. last meal, maybe even four. Michael, yeah. why don't you? What would yours be? Double, double, and go three in, orders of I fries. I would just go in as hard as I could on uh, a deluxe cheeseburger fries. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't do the milkshake. The milkshake would put me to sleep. I would be. Oh, that would put me over there. So good. But then a large sprite too. You got to get the yeah. carbonated soda, sugar oh, in there. Yes. Yeah, sure. I'd get a cup of coffee. You'd have to roll me out of that place. All right, last one. UK startup Sear Grills rolled out the Perfecta, a new grill that can allegedly cook foods 10 times faster than what you're currently working with. Its burners can reach 1,652 degrees Fahrenheit and could cook an inch thick ribeye in 90 seconds without flipping the meat. Michael, does the prospect of this grill frighten you or excite you? 
both. I, uh, oh, yeah, fact, both? Nice. Yeah, I love the fact that I can do something else quicker in my life. Yeah. But then I'm, like, frightened of the fact of, like, how am I not going to burn myself doing know, this? Right? Like, there's something that's going to happen. How is your house not going to start on fire? Exactly. How is because then you know, like in like a paper towel falls on there, and then negative ten seconds, the whole kitchen's on fire. <laughs> so it's like, what do you do? That's like three times the average degree heat of like a a Weber oven, you know, or a Weber grill. That's nuts. All right. Anyway, well, that I was also great... wonder like how does that actually really work? Like, is that <laughs> real? Because the other thing I'd be frightened about is I'd burn everything. I know, right? And you and you don't have to flip it. So there must be something cool about the technology. You know, it's kind of maybe George Foreman esque in a lot of ways. All right. Well, that closes us up. Great show today. Lots of insight dropped. Happy birthday today to Matthew Lillard, Kerry Kuhn, and to the man who asked the very important yet still unanswerable question, what do tigers dream of? The great Ed Helms. And remember, if you can only read or listen to one retail blog in the blog in the business, make it OmniTalk, the only retail media outlet run by two former executives from a current top 10 U.S. retailer. Our Fast Five podcast is the quickest, fastest rundown of all the week's top news. And our twice-weekly newsletter tells you the top five things you need to know each day. It also features special content exclusive to us, and we do it all just for you. And actually, our newsletter is no longer twice-weekly. I got to update that, and It is now daily. Yes, you can sign That's up to right. get the Retail Daily Minute delivered to your inbox first thing every morning thanks as always for listening in please remember to like and leave us a review wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts or on youtube you can follow us today by simply going to youtube.com slash retail manola if people want to get in touch with you or anyone else at the AM consumer and retail group what is the best way for them to do that Absolutely. The best way is to find us online, alvarezemersal-crg.com, or feel free to reach out to either myself or, or Michael on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, on behalf of Michael, Manola, Anne, and all of us at OmniTalk Retail, as always, be careful out there. The OmniTalk Fast Five is brought to you in association with the A&M Consumer and Retail Group. The AM Consumer and Retail Group is a management consulting firm that tackles the most complex challenges and advances clients, people, and communities toward their maximum potential. CRG brings the experience, tools, and operator-like pragmatism to help retailers and consumer products companies be on the right side of disruption. And Avalara. Avalara makes tax compliance faster, easier, more accurate, and more reliable for 30,000-plus businesses and government customers in over 90 countries. Avalara leverages 1,200-plus signed partner integrations to power tax calculations, document management, tax return filing, and tax content access. Visit avalara.com to improve your compliance journey. And Williot. Williot's ambient IoT visibility platform, powered by battery-free Bluetooth tags, eliminates scanning for real-time, end-to-end inventory visibility. For more information, head to williot.com slash and TGW. Revolutionize your grocery supply chain with TGW. Their experts tailor automation solutions to your needs, ensuring you have the edge. Work with TGW before your competition does. Discover more at tgw-group.com. And Sezzle. Sezzle is an innovative buy now, pay later solution that allows shoppers to split purchases into four interest-free payments over six weeks. To learn more, visit sezzle.com.